1: Girl, real talk.
2: This whole it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes.
1: I was fairly clear on the fact that I was never going to make money off my writing. That hasn't turned out to be true, but that is definitely what reality felt like to, to me 15, 20 years ago was, I better have a day job. And the upside of that was that my writing was all play for me.
2: I'm Jordan Kistner author of the essay collection, Thin Places. And this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives in their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Eulabyss is, I think, one of the great essayists working today. She's the author of several awarded works of nonfiction, including Notes from No Man's Land, On Immunity, and most recently her book Having and Being Had, which is a series of short meditations on the complicated relationship between work, labor, art, value, and capital. That sounds pretty high-flown maybe, and it is, but the book feels really approachable and very grounded in everyday moments like talking to neighbors, speaking up in a work meeting, deciding whether to do this or that repair on your house. It's conversational and it's searching. And one of the things I appreciate about it is the way she illuminates the small manners in which we're all always navigating the question of what gives our work and our lives value. She chatted with me about a big decision about her work she made after finishing the book, which she's still feeling her way through.
1: I've realized in thinking about this that my life is just full of thresholds, transformations, times, uh, liminal states, times of transition. It's like, I think I live there. I live in the threshold and I think I've lived there for a long time. And uh, as a writer, I think I actually court this, state that you're talking about and um and maybe we can eventually get there talking in the more abstract sense about like how how a writer arrives at this kind of liminal transitional transformational place but more concretely i think my most recent book came out of crossing over a threshold moving through a threshold and that was of a class threshold um not that I changed classes but that I moved into living uh, a f- fairly um some version of what we imagined to be a conventional middle class lifestyle so that hadn't been true for most of my adulthood and um and then I held down a steady job for a while uh had a kid and bought a house and um it was really buying the house and moving into it that that felt like a uh, a major moment of transition for me around how I was living and experiencing my class so it's not that i suddenly became middle class it's more that i entered this middle class lifestyle um and I had a lot of thoughts and feelings about it. So this most recent book, Having and Being Had, really came out of that moment um, where I was I was watching myself, I was watching, I was looking at observing this lifestyle, which for the moment was Strange to me uh, because I I was new to it. It's a lifestyle that isn't strange to a lot of people because it's you know it's broadcast all over the place you know in media and television as the supposedly normative American lifestyle, even though most people don't live it. Um, so it's there are things about it that. Could be familiar, but I, I felt like a, a little bit of a stranger in a strange land when I when I arrived in this place. And so, part of the project of the book was kind of anthropological notes on on what this lifestyle is, what mindset accompanies it, um, what its expectations and assumptions are. And so it it was, I I think that was the project of the book is uh, something of a cultural critique, um, of the middle class. The decision to, to buy a house was made with my partner over a fairly long period of conversation years. Um, We were living in an apartment building in Chicago and had a young child um, who was annoying all our neighbors, or at least our downstairs neighbors, just by you know moving around, living. His living was annoying our neighbors. (laughs) 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 Um, But you know, I think buying a house meant something fairly different to me than it meant to my partner. We have different class backgrounds, different different mindsets, different everything. Um, but so we did go back and forth and, and we spent a fair amount of time looking and not being able to find something that we could afford, um, in, in a distance that would be walkable or bikeable to where we work. And that was one of the things we were looking for. And so, um, so it took a long time. It took like four, four years or more for us to find a house. And during that time period, I started to not really want a house anymore. (laughs) I think it's, I, it took us long enough to find one that by the time we found one, I was like, I I might be finished with this idea. I, maybe I don't, (laughs) I don't need a house after all. (laughs) Um, but you know, this was not just me alone making this decision. It was in conversation with my partner, and um, and he had quite a bit of enthusiasm for the house that we eventually found. And it's not like I was dragged into it. I I was excited too, but I'd had long enough to think about it that I was by the time we we signed the paperwork, I was beginning to think about what we were trading for. The various ways in which this house would make our lives easier. Um, and it did make our lives easier almost immediately. Um, but you know, we we did trade something for that as well. Um the, the mortgage locked us into needing a certain level of income.
2: Yeah, and in the book you you write pretty explicitly about your mixed feelings about that. Yeah. About how there the cost of the gift you had been able to give yourselves um sometimes felt really high there was a moment in i guess later in the book where you talk about feeling like your job which you now certainly certainly need mm-hmm. is robbing the pleasure from your from your work yeah. and that that was one of the prices of this home that mm-hmm. also made your life easier yes yes
1: yeah the buying the house and taking on a mortgage put me in a to a different relationship to my work life in general but that job specifically um and i think it focused my attention on ways in which i already felt confined or trapped by that job it's uh once i really needed it had to have it uh i, I a lot more of my attention went to um, the ways in which it was confining me, I guess, or not right for me, but you know, that for me, even just talking about work is complicated because work means so many things in my life. So I had a job teaching, which I no longer have. um, But I also had my work as a writer and I use work to refer to both of those things. But For most of my adult life, my work as a writer has not provided any sort of steady income. It's provided occasional windfalls um, uh, of money, but um, especially for the first 15 years or so of my writing life, I wasn't, you know, it it wasn't paying the rent for sure.
2: The amount of attention you pay in having and being had to definitions Mm -hmm. and to trying to find definitions or clear meanings to words that we all sort of agree on vague definitions of. You ask Mm -hmm. a friend, what is capitalism? You talk Mm -hmm. about the definition of work versus labor versus Mm -hmm. job. Um, You question the word luxury. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious why this emphasis on looking directly at these words and trying to unpack the word itself felt mm-hmm. so important to you yeah. in this project.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's because I was going through a period in my life where I was asking myself really frequently w- what I want, what I really want. Um and in order to answer that question, I had to I had to know what the terms I was using meant, you know, at least for my own purposes, you know. So when I was asking myself, what do I want out of work? What do I want out of my work life? I need to know what work means. In what sense am I using that word? Even when I say work, do I mean my writing? When I say work, do I mean the teaching that I do for income? Um, And the same for pretty much everything in this moment, which is, you know, I'm writing through in this book, something of a midlife crisis, right. Which is its own threshold, right. It's, it's a a liminal transitional, if you're lucky transformational place. Um, and in this, in this moment of crisis, the ground seems to be shifting under me and, and every, every question I ask seems to involve a quantity that I can't define. Um, so that's uh, partly I'm asking myself, what is my relationship to capitalism? Um, w- and what's my police in it? Um, but in order to answer that question, I need to know w- what is capitalism? What am I talking about here? <laughs> um, so, you know, and this is a part of the way the, the book really circles certain definitions and certain concepts. So the three terms that repeat in in the headings of the the short works that make up this longer work are capitalism, work and art. And this is me returning again and again to my own questions about what those things are. What is work? What is capitalism and what is art to me? Um and i'm returning again and again because i'm asking myself what do i want these things to be and if you know if am i in a moment in my life where i can invite these things to to, to be as to have a, a certain kind of presence in my life or can i Reimagine my relationship to these things I, I think that's what's really going on in this book is i'm I'm beginning to wonder, can I reimagine my relationship to work? Can I reimagine my relationship to capitalism to art making um, and you know i think as as I mentioned to you, I think that i I more or less live in a threshold in that i have a lot of negative capability i'm i dwell in ambivalence i um i'm really comfortable in contradiction internal contradiction it's i spend a lot of time in that psychological space i think that that's why i'm attracted to the essay as a writer it's um it's a genre that's especially amenable to that mindset. Uh, It's especially fertile for ambivalence, uncertainty, second guessing, um, the open exploration of questions. So that's my sense of the genre. And and it's also why I'm here as a writer. Um, So... (laughs) No, I've lost my train of thought.
2: (laughs) This episode of Thresholds is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the world. Every day, MUBI premieres a new film. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there's always something new to discover. And each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. Something I particularly love about MUBI is the way that they create collections of films, like highlights from past years of the Cannes Film Festival, or films that emphasize the history of French feminist filmmaking. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at moviecom slash thresholds. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash thresholds for a whole month of great cinema for free. Be sure to check what's streaming in your area.
1: Well, it's just I keep losing my train of thought because this is such... Interesting, fertile, exciting ground for me. This this thresholds question, and it just branches in so many directions for me. It's it it branches into my actual practice as a writer, and into some of these specifics of of genre, but also the way I use research and what research does for me on the page and what it does for my process. So you know, my my mind was just starting to wander in that direction, but it also you know connects to I think something that I'm now beginning to understand that I invite in my own life as well. You know, I I invite this state of of uncertainty and ambivalence. There I, I thought for a long time that I was on my way to some kind of arrival as, as a writer or as a person. And I think I'm just beginning to make peace with the fact that there, there will be no arrival and in part because I won't allow it and I won't allow it because some part of me understands that that would be artistically devastating. (laughs) So I've got to keep, I've got to keep myself in this very unsettling and you know, to some extent unstable place, but that is also really artistically generative. So the one of the things that isn't um that that happened after the narrative time of this book, uh, having and being had, um, but I think the book was very much building towards this decision is that I quit my job shortly after finishing this book. Um <laughs> and now that I've done that and left my teaching job, I think in my mind that's the real conclusion to the work. I, I think that that quitting that that act was the real ending of the book. It's not in the book. The book is very open ended, but I think it's open ended because the true ending hadn't happened yet when I finished the book. The real ending was that I decided to quit this job and propel myself into another, you know moment of threshold crossing where now I've, I've left that teaching position that I was in for 15 years. And I'm now in a pretty open-ended amorphous space where I'm trying to figure out if and how I can make my living as a writer, which I've never done in my adult life.
2: Wow. Why, how did
1: you make that decision? Ah. <sighs> I think I made it, the how of it is I made it through writing that book, you know, through turning over all these questions about what do I, what is work in my life? What do I want work to be? Um, And what, what can work be? It's, and I think I made the decision to leave this teaching job in order to open some new possibilities for what work could be in my life. and I'm, I think I'm hoping for both something a little more expansive in terms of using what I have to offer. Um, but also, uh, I think I had a sense, you know, past 40, um, that I was arriving at a place where, where whatever work I was doing, I needed to be in a decision-making role. It's, I think, at this sense that I'd arrived at a place in my life, in my development as a writer, but also in my own relationship to being uh, a working woman where I just couldn't continue on in a workspace where I didn't have a, a meaningful voice in a decision-making role in my workplace. And I didn't have that in my job. So that's really what propelled me out the door. Um, And, uh, and now, you know, I've, now I've got a lot of decisions to make. (laughs) I've got the other problem now. It's I, all the decisions are mine.
2: Right. When, when did you quit your job? Like when did that Um, happen? This past spring.
1: So it hasn't been that long. I, 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 Resigned well, just a couple in, months. in March or April. Yeah. Yeah. Not How that it, long at all. How's it going? How does it feel? Uh, it felt exhilarating at first. Um, and then, and now I think some of the exhilaration has, <laughs> has worn off and, um, and, it feels a little, uh, there's a a little uneasiness has crept in, in that because I haven't quite, um, I haven't quite located the next thing. And so I'm in a very much a transitional period where I'm trying out uh, a few different things and trying out collaborations with other writers, trying out doing some of the work that I loved in teaching. So mentorship and um and looking at other people's writing doing manuscript consultation i'm i'm trying to do some of that outside the structure of an institution and so it that's it's tricky actually this this place that i'm in is i'm trying to um keep doing the things that i loved about teaching without a teaching job (laughs) and um but I'm also you know part of this decision was about opening up more time for my own writing and for my creative work and um that is also both exhilarating and scary it's uh I think the thing that I didn't have the luxury of understanding for many many years is that being too busy to attend to your own writing saves you from some of the terror of facing down your own work. You know? So right. I was always for many, many years, I was just writing in the cracks and crevices. You know, I was writing in the time left over. I was writing mostly at night. You know, I wrote several books mostly at night. <laughs> and, um, and so I, you know, this is really fairly new for me that I get to write in the daytime. Um, and, uh, and that I get to write on, you know, what would be a, a working schedule for most people on something approaching a nine to five schedule that's brand new. And, um, really great, uh, tremendous luxury, but also, you know, having more time, um, opens up space for different kinds of ambition. And then I have to reckon with my own ambition and wrestle with it a little bit. And so it's, uh, it's, there's, this is also a time that's a, a little bit, uh, uh, I don't know. There's, I, I, I'm experiencing a little more struggle around my own artistic practice than I have in the past. In part because I have the time for that luxury of struggle, and I didn't in the past.
2: Sure. I mean, to an extent, also you've by getting rid of the job that mm-hmm. was sort of the the most vexed aspect of your relationship to your work or your labor depending on Mm -hmm. which word you would choose to use yeah um and putting writing and art making at the center Mm -hmm. of your working life um you've shifted I mean as somebody who's just written this big long book about capitalism and productivity and work and art and trying to solve that Mm -hmm. it does I mean it seems like a great triumph in a way that seems like yeah the great the great ending of the book that isn't in the book that you you quit this job and mm-hmm. so that you can make more art and yet I wonder how it feels to put more financial pressure more capital pressure yeah. on your art making
1: yeah and you know that was the thing that I was most worried about when I was in the process of making this decision um, I was worried about putting earning pressure on my writing in part because I've always enjoyed and been very aware of enjoying the fact that there was no earning pressure on on my writing. Um, And in the beginning, that was just a a product of the sort of writing I was doing. I started out um, writing mostly prose poetry and um, kind of odd nonfiction that wasn't in the moment i was writing it didn't wasn't going to earn any money um you know in in didn't i didn't even have the impression you know 15 and 20 years ago that i just had to you know work a little longer a little harder at it as a writer and eventually i'd start to earn money as a writer i i was fairly clear on the fact that i was never going to make money off my writing that hasn't turned out to be true but that is definitely what reality felt like to to me 15 20 years ago was i better have a day job um and the the upside of that was that my writing was all play for me um it was uh, it was a place of pure play and pleasure which didn't doesn't mean it wasn't also work right it was my writing was where i was doing my most difficult intellectual work you know asking the hardest questions um i was writing a book for instance about whiteness and race and about um the hardest questions i could ask myself about my own my own place in the world as a human being and um and so that wasn't you know it wasn't all fun and games but it was also i never thought about questions like will this sell and will somebody pay me for this? That was never my priority. It never, and, you know, by the time I was writing my, uh, let's see, second and third book, um, it didn't, it didn't have to be a priority. I had a day job I was teaching. Um, and so it was really hard to make this decision to, um, to, Put a new kind of pressure on my artistic practice that I I was very aware of the fact that that could be bad for my work and bad for my practice. Um, And I also, though, you know, was taking into consideration the fact that I'm at this point mid-career and hopefully developed enough as a writer that I I know what I want to do and I know how I want to sound and I and I think I'm stubborn enough, um, to maybe now be s- strong enough to tolerate some earning pressure on my work. Um, I, I, but I, you're, you're asking me this question in a moment of real experimentation. Really what I'm doing now is trying out, you know, what, what it, will it feel like and what will happen to the work when there's earning pressure on it? And initially it didn't feel good. And I, even though I I was really prepared for, um, for the arrival of this new kind of pressure, it's, it, uh, I was a little caught off guard by how bad it felt, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And I think some things remain the same. And this is one of the things that I've learned from talking to other writers who, Um, do make their living or do pay the rent from their writing is many of them do have two categories of writing in their minds that the writing that they're um, the earning writing and the writing that is really their creative work. You know, e- even if those two categories aren't necessarily discernible to readers, they they are to the writer. The writer knows, you know, this one's for me or this one's for money. <laughs> you
2: know? Yeah. Yeah. That uh, distinction of this, I am writing for myself. Yes. Even if you eventually sell it yes. or have sold it always like there, you know, that's a Yes. That distinction is also one I, I keep for myself and have heard other people talk Mm -hmm. about too. Yes. Have, is that already present in your thinking or are you in a different, trying to approach it in a different way? No,
1: it it is very much present. And it is, as you say, a, a fairly constant negotiation. So You know, one of the things that made this last book, Having and Being Had, you know, almost a work of performance art, um, you know, there was a lot going on beyond the page, um, was that this was the first work that I ever um, sold on proposal um, before finishing the writing. Um, So I sold on immunity for a small amount of money um, when it was mostly finished. So that one was, I think, maybe technically sold on proposal, but not like having me being had, which was a a book that really wasn't even close to done when I sold it. And so I was in this place where it part of me felt like I, I'd pulled off some sort of coup as a, a writer in that I I had the money in my pocket already and uh you know and um which wasn't true for my first three books. You know, the the time that it took to write those books was I paid out of my own, you know, scrambling and ingenuity and grants that I got and various ways of um getting money and getting time. Um, and with this book, I, I more or less was paid up front. Um, and so this should have, I believe put me in a place where I was utterly free to do whatever I wanted. Right. It's, um, but I just, I found myself very aware that I was getting paid more for this book than I'd ever been paid for any of my other work. And, um, I think I started imagining the kind of book that I'd have to write to have earned my, my advance. And I kept falling short in my mind of writing that book. And so I was in some kind of really strange, psychological model um, where I kept f- failing to write the book that would be worth the money I'd been paid, <laughs> 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 which is maybe just a version of what we all go through as writers with just a uh, I, every book I've written has failed to live up to some kind of expectation that I've had for it, so this time that expectation was tied to money in a new way but um i know i've I've never quite written the book that I set out to write with with any of my books um so it was a new version of that but i i guess uh, I've also never been um dogged by concerns like, um, will this sell? That's, that's actually never crossed my mind with a book (laughs) until this time. And, uh, and it confused me a little bit because I thought, why does it matter to me if it sells
2: or not? I've been paid. Um, right. Well, I mean, it sounds like you were feeling the pressure of having been invested in, right? Yes. Like The mm-hmm. the thing about the selling a book on advance is that the publisher has determined that they're prepared to invest X amount of money in you mm-hmm. because they think what you make will return on their investment. Yes. So there is a kind of an obligation, even if it's not real, you know, yes. they're not going to make you give the money back if your book doesn't earn out, yeah. but there is... Even if it's not written into the contract, there is, I think, maybe socially this feeling, or I mm-hmm. don't know, emotionally, this feeling mm-hmm. that what you're supposed to do is supposed to be worth the dollar amount mm-hmm. um, that they've attached to it of yes. entirely arbitrarily, probably. Yes. And and that, I mean, you're reminding me of, of a one of the short pieces in the book where you are defending the right of your writing to be worthless yeah yeah <laughs> and saying like i don't want i don't want to have to make my writing be um valuable in the marketplace because mm-hmm. then there will be you know then there will be so little left in my life that is given the freedom to be worthless mm-hmm. um and making there is a um there is a sacrifice i think somewhere mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. in
2: asking your writing to be worth something, if only because you feel obligated then to make it, make it worth mm-hmm. something. But there's no way to like, that's a purely imaginative yes. exercise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is no way to make a book worth anything in a concrete sense when mm. you're writing it, yes. or in a, in a capitalist sense when you're writing it. Yeah. And so it just, I think, becomes confusing in the way that you're describing. I mm-hmm. feel like I'm in, I'm in a, I'm in a weird Tangle, where mm-hmm. I'm trying to write something that's valuable enough, but how, but how could how could the writer possibly know how to do that? Yes,
1: yes, this is a great way of putting it, and I think it gets it brings you straight to an anxiety that I think is best hidden from yourself when you're writing. That the is this worth it concern, <laughs> you know. <it's, laughs> and you know, I, I think that that concern dogs many writers and uh, and we all find different ways of hiding from it or tamping it down or it's um and people suffer different versions of it you know some people suffer the is the time i'm putting towards this endeavor worth it is you know or is this worth is this work worth someone else's attention and you know i think for quite a bit of my my career as a writer, I really, um, didn't struggle that much with the, is this worth it question. Um, I just knew that I had to write for my own purposes. It was worth it because of what I got out of it. And, um, that really wasn't, a question that I, I troubled with all this mo- that much. So this was a new experience for me is really being brought to the, the worth it question, um, in a day to day way where I had to, um, you know, find various ways of answering that question or hiding from it. But, um, uh, there was something in what you just said that I wanted to return to. It was really interesting to me. And now I'm trying to circle back in my mind to what it was. Yeah. Oh, I, I was going to go back to the worthlessness and, and like the value of worthlessness. And that I think that that was the contradiction that I was writing around and to and within in this book and that I, I'm, I'm still in now is this that the worthlessness of writing is both wonderful and terrible. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's wonder, it, I think it's actually wonderful and liberating to be in a space where there's no economic value to what you're doing. Um, but it's terrible because you've, you're pouring time into something that can't feed you or house you. So, and that creates a constant tension between the thing that you want to be doing and the thing that you have to be doing in order to provide for yourself and your family. Um, so, and that's, that's the contradiction that I was trying to think about in this book. Um, and I still find it interesting and fruitful to, to muddle around in that contradiction and, um, And it's a contradiction that comes up around parenting for me too. It's um, parenting is another one of those uh, worthless activities, right. And that people don't have children to make money. And it's in general, it's a money losing endeavor to have a kid. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's, you know, in that way, it's, I, I don't know if you can say that having children is anti-capitalist, but it it does put you, especially if you're the parent who is doing most of the caregiving or uh, you know a dominant amount of the caregiving, it it, it puts you in this um, the position of an artist to be doing work that is undervalued and uncompensated um, for the most part and um and that doesn't mean there aren't pleasures in the work right we we parent for reasons that have nothing to do with money um but it also creates tremendous hardships for people specifically women um to have to parent without any financial compensation for that labor um and it creates horrible decisions that have to be made between um Providing what you think a child needs and wants, and and providing you know for their material existence, their their food and housing. Um, So it, it puts parents in the position of having to choose between time with their child and and supporting their child's material needs. Horrible decisions.
2: Going around and around in my head about like back to this question of vocabulary and definitions, thinking about this idea of worthlessness or the the right of making writing that that's Mm -hmm. worthless, Um, Mm -hmm. because it seems like one of the, the problems we run into, I don't know, conversationally, but certainly practically is the fact that writing and lots of kinds of work that have to do with vocation the feeling mm-hmm. of um you know of needing to bring something into the world is both work and art mm-hmm. right it's not and and it and there's a real hesitation that i feel and that you write about of making the the worth of art subject to the vocabulary or the terms of capitalism or of the market right of like Mm -hmm. of asking something like parenting or something like painting to be worthwhile in the same way that I don't know building infrastructure is worthwhile I don't Mm -hmm. I don't know what what the good sort of counter example would be Mm -hmm. but it's it's there's a like a gap in our language when we talk about um the sort of this vexed relationship between um, work that's just the work you do to support yourself. Like Mm -hmm. it's your clock in clock out work and the work that is vocation that might sort of that, or the labor maybe that Mm -hmm. is, that is also vocation that you do not because it's financially sustaining you, Mm -hmm. but because it's sustaining you or the world in other ways, like Mm -hmm. parenting, like writing. Yeah, Um, and it strikes me listening to you that that, that missing word feels really important because it, what happens is that We wind up having to talk about this once again in the terms of the market and not in in other terms that might Mm -hmm. feel more capacious for the truth of of the situation. Yeah. And this is one of the interesting things that came up in
1: my research for this book is that many languages used to have two words for work. Um, And so English did as well. We had work and labor and one of these words is is used in in many languages for the pleasurable aspects of work or work that is is pleasurable or done for its own reward right? and then um another word is used for work that is drudgery or is is done for um it is unrewarding so um, but one of the interesting things is that even though many many languages had two words to 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 navigate the very distinction that you're talking about in this post industrial moment, those words have collapsed into each other, um, and w- we tend to use just one word now for both for work that is rewarding and work that is drudgery, and actually when I really think about it, most jobs have aspects of both, right? There's, there's rewarding aspects to many jobs and a certain element of drudgery to many jobs as well. Though you know, then there's jobs that that definitely tilt more towards drudgery than others. Well, and this is the interesting thing in these, um, when I was reading Lewis Hyde and he was talking about the distinction between work and labor as he uses those terms. Um, and he he's defining, uh, I think it's labor. Now I've confused the two, but I think he's defining labor as, as pleasurable work. Um, and for him, part of th- what the defining characteristic of labor is that it's transformative um and so i I'm bringing this up because it brings us back to thresholds right and this <laughs> in transformation is um the and he gives this list of of work that could be considered labor and it his list includes um uh like inventing a new equation writing a poem um parenting a child um uh, providing psychoanalysis, you know, all these things are, uh, offer some promise of transformation. And I, in reading that list, I realized, oh, yes, yeah, this is all the work that I'm attracted to, parenting, writing, teaching, is work that offers tremendous opportunity for transformation. And in that way, it's really luxurious work. Um Because the ratio of drudgery to transformation is is really excellent in in a lot of those endeavors, I do think quite a a good number of writers and artists are able to hide out in academia and um, have really stable positions um, that are rewarding and satisfying for them, and that also provide the the financial stability that they need to to do their work as artists so I, I do think it it tends to be of the many options available to writers and artists I think it it tends to be one of both the most stable and the most lucrative out there um, but I do think there's a possibility that the that the relationship was always gonna be vexed for me just. Because I think as much as I crave stability for reasons that are totally personal and have to do with my own childhood and background, um, I I think I'm realizing that certain kinds of instability are what I write from and are really creatively generative for me. And so, I either have to dwell in instability, or I have to find ways to generate intellectual instability or intellectual discomfort, and which I'm pretty good at doing. <laughs> I have to say, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. one of the ways I do that as a as a writer is um, by putting myself in um, in, in in subject matter that i'm uncomfortable with and unprepared to tackle and uh one of the things i've discovered is that i'm just not the kind of writer who's ever going to have um a, a subject matter that i land on and become an expert in and um and write book after book about it's in part because i i need to be um destabilized by my lack of knowledge in a particular area in order to be driven into the creative process uh, the way that I like to engage with it. So, you know, writing a book about vaccination when I had very little background in even the sciences in general um, was really destabilizing for me and nerve wracking and difficult, but it was also incredibly artistically productive. Um, and, uh, and I think the, the way that I've been destabilizing myself lately is, um, by setting intellectual challenges that are, that are going to be hard to meet. So this book having and being had is actually part of a two book project. Um, I've been envisioning these two books for quite a while Um, and I knew that the first book would be more personal in nature and now I'm working on the second book which is more um outward focused and I'm looking at some of the same questions about capitalism and property and ownership and work and money but I'm trying to look at those questions in an international setting and um with a scope that I have not used in my work before, so I'm writing a collection of essays where I look at land ownership and property rights in um, in rural England, in South Africa, in um, various places in the United States, but also in countries that I don't know that much about, um, including Japan is one of the places I'm considering writing about. And so this is just pushing me far out of my knowledge base and comfort zone. And of course, there's all kinds of, um, you know, problems and pitfalls that could be created for me as a writer because of that. But I think it's also what keeps me being in a place where I I feel like I need to learn a lot fast, and um, where I don't have the context that I need, and I need to um, stretch and reach uh, to to find that context, I think that that's what puts me in the place that I write from and that I where I feel most artistically productive. So that's I, I think that that's something that I'm I'm continually doing is finding ways to destabilize myself with subject matter.
2: That's just the most essayist
1: <laughs> It turns uh, out I'm really an essayist. You're really super duper an essayist.
2: <laughs> Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week.
0: Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told